Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, I'm talking with Helen Thompson about the history of ideas to get her take on what she thinks are the really big ideas that help make sense of contemporary politics and where she thinks they come from. I'm putting it all on you. Is that right? <laughs> That's not a good idea, given that I realise I've lost faith in my old beliefs of this matter. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas, where you can read elegant and expansive essays on every subject imaginable, from Amir Srinivasan on pronouns to James Meek on the WHO, from Pankaj Mishra on Anglo-America to Catherine Rundell on the Greenland Shark. Get 12 issues in print and online, that's half a year of the LRB, for just £12, with the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Helen, I feel like I should sort of start with, um, I don't know if this is an apology or an act of penance or something, but... The podcast that we've done, that I've done, our companion podcast, History of Ideas, which is Talks by Me, it does come out of the course that you and I have taught over the years in different forms in Cambridge, which is an attempt to offer an introduction to modern politics through some of the big ideas in the past. And the series that I've just done, the series of talks, it doesn't exactly map onto that course, and it's probably got some things in it that you might not like and the shape of it might not be the shape you'd given it but some of the shape of it definitely comes from you and the course that we've done together and we've never really talked about um, why it has that shape. I'm genuinely curious to know how we ended up with this particular kind of curriculum or syllabus for thinking about modern politics and we could start with the question at the beginning. I don't think we should spend another 45 minutes talking about Thomas Hobbes. I think uh, people who listen to this podcast might lose the will to live but (laughs) That introduction that we've done together over the years, it does start with Hobbes. So I want to ask you more directly what you would have in that I haven't had in and which ideas you think are important that I've left out. But I guess we both sort of agree with starting with Hobbes. But I don't know what your reason is for starting with Hobbes, because I've never heard your version of the Hobbes lecture. I've only ever heard my own. Why do you think, assuming you do still think this, and maybe you don't, why do you think thinking about 21st century politics, it's good to ground it with someone like Hobbes? Well, actually, partly because of the fact that you've been doing the the talks for the history of ideas, I have been thinking about this question because when I first went to Cambridge, I inherited, as it happened, organising the first year course, and it then began with Hobbes. And then a few years in, I thought that what was there didn't work very well and came up with this alternative way of doing things the gist of which as you said is has kind of lasted and it would never have occurred to me I think before I went to Cambridge that you started thinking about politics by thinking about Hobbes but the fact that I was teaching the old version made me read Leviathan again and I realized that when I'd read it as an undergraduate I really hadn't understood a word of it and I was very affected by reading it and teaching it and thought that that thinking about modern politics did begin there for a reason that I'll come to. But what's, I think, been interesting for me in the last year or so, perhaps, is is that I'm not entirely so convinced about that Hobbes is a place to start any longer. I'm not sure what is instead. 
The reason I think that I thought, and I still sort of hold on to a reasonable amount of this belief, is is that Hobbes seems to me to pose a really stark question, and that is, is what is the worst thing that can happen in politics? And he says, either you think it's civil war, which is his answer, or you think that it's tyranny, the state being tyrannical. And I thought, and to some extent still think, that you have to have an answer to that question, that he is right to pose that question. I think that the reason why I'm not so sure any longer is is because there's something I think utopian in the end about the way, strangely, about the way in which Hobbes answers the question. Because in wanting to create the Commonwealth in the way in which he does and create the artificial person and as the sovereign and have that come about through stripping away everything, essentially, but the laws of nature, I think that Hobbes actually paradoxically asks far too much of human beings and that it's simply not possible for them to leave all these beliefs behind when they come into the political sphere. And in some sense, I think he acknowledges that perfectly well himself and argues against himself, because as we know, he spends the second half of Leviathan inventing this doctrine where there's no hell. There's only immortality of the soul for going to heaven and not immortality of the soul otherwise. And so he can't actually put much faith in the solution that he comes up with because he knows that people do bring their, in this case, very strongly held religious beliefs into the political arena. And then so much then of his argument becomes about how you get those beliefs shut out and just get everyone concentrating on the fact that they have a mutual right of self-preservation with with everybody else. That's really interesting for me, because as you were speaking, I was thinking it is such a different answer from the one I gave. And when I think about what I said about Hobbes, I said almost nothing about civil war. I'm pretty sure I said nothing about tyranny. And I said nothing about religion. So the three building (laughs) blocks of your answer were not in my answer. So I'm now going to ask you some questions about this. And I think we'll come on to religion as well. So I I very self-consciously was trying to give a history of modern ideas that would make sense in a broadly secular context. And that was part of my answer in the episode we just put out about why no John Locke. But it is true, and I didn't really mention this, that of course, half of Leviathan, actually the longer half of Leviathan, is essentially about religion and the Bible. Um, And I just focused on what you might call the secular bits. But on the tyranny civil war question, if that's the question that Hobbes poses, and you think about it now, I think we all still understand that tyranny is a real risk. And we have to, all of us, when thinking about politics, think of what price we would be willing to pay to avoid it. Is civil war still a real risk? There are obviously various forms of civil breakdown and ways in which these modern states of the kind that Hobbes helped bring into being malfunction, grind to a halt, cease to perform their fundamental obligations. But civil war, I mean, people talk about it a lot. People talk about it in Trump's America. You know, this is a country on the brink of civil war. Is it? I mean, is civil war still the way that we can frame the ultimate choice? I think that it is in parts of the world. I mean, um, Sure, but Syria. I'm thinking where, where the state is quite entrenched. And maybe it's, it's a mm-hmm. testament to Hobbes is he wasn't a utopian. He did manage to help 
push to the margins the thing that he thought was the worst possible outcome in the places where these kinds of states become properly established. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I don't think that um, Trump's America is on the on the verge of um, civil war. I think, though, that it is worth sort of still asking the question, perhaps in a slightly diluted form, than what Hobbes does of like what are the consequences of the breakdown of political authority and how do they compare in their awfulness to the consequences of having the state do terrible things and kill very large numbers of people of its own citizens. And one of the things that I do think is is that if you look at it from where Hobbes stood, then it it seems, and I think he's right in this, if you're standing in, you know, in England in 1651, then it may well seem self-evident, as he wants it to be, and he does want it to be self-evident, I think, that, that civil war is the worst thing that can happen and that you have to then accept the risk of tyranny, the state tyranny, because there's always the worst catastrophe. Now, I think if you st- stood at the end of the 20th century and look back on the... 20th century, it's far from self-evident that civil war is the worst thing that can happen in politics. I mean, that the state could just, or those in charge of states, just in some places did the most frightful, appalling, just unimaginable things with state power. So I think that in some sense, by the time that we've lived through the, the 20th century and seen what totalitarian states can do, then Hobbes seems wrong. Now, it must be said that there were people at the time, including John Locke, you know, who thought that Hobbes was, was just wrong about this question you know, back in the 17th um, century. But I thought, and to some extent still think, that it's at least worth still pressing the question as hard as Hobbes does about which of them is worse. One more Hobbes thing and then we'll move on, I promise. So Hobbes' answer is that we need to have a single sovereign source of authority to at a basic level, define some of the categories of politics, what counts as peace, what counts as a threat. And so civil war, another way of putting it, if you leave some of the 17th century violence out and just think about what the breakdown of political order means, it's not to be able to agree on a single source of authority, to have fundamental disagreements which make it impossible for people to come together in a political community about who gets to decide. And it certainly is possible, including in Trump's America, that that condition is we're either there or we're close to being there, that we are quite close to fundamental disagreements about who actually gets to decide. But it doesn't look like it's leading to civil war. And I think that's partly because we live in, and people who've heard me talk on this podcast will know that I think that 21st century social, demographic and other conditions are just so radically different from almost the whole history of modern politics that the implications of political breakdown are different but that the breakdown is at least potentially the same. And of course, we have states that aren't Hobbesian, including the American state, because it has very different sources of authority for different contexts. So there's already the possibility of that kind of disagreement built in. But we seem to have moved one stage beyond that, not just in some contexts, the Supreme Court might decide in some contexts, the president or Congress might decide, to a sort of epistemic disagreement about what counts as authority. And that does seem to me to be at least potentially Hobbesian, but without that 17th century feeling that 
you know, the 30 years war is just around the corner. Am I right there? Yeah, I think we entirely agree on this point in that if you move from Hobbes's question to Hobbes's answer, which I think in a number of ways the answer is deeply unsatisfactory, but the one way I think in which it is not unsatisfactory is is that somebody, and I don't necessarily mean by that a singular person, quite the contrary, has to decide. And that the question of who decides and crucially the question of who has the authority to decide is fundamental in politics. And I think that one of the reasons why you know, there is a strong case for taking Hobbes's arguments as seriously as I think you and I do, even where we disagree with Hobbes, is, is because there are lots of different ways of thinking about politics that avoid dealing with that question. That in starting with accounts of freedom and of what political authority costs human beings, which it undoubtedly does, wants to escape answering the question of, well, what kind of political authority can there be and how can it be legitimated? Because let's just say you have to be much more utopian than either you and I are to think that it is possible to live without any kind of political authority. So then the question is, if you accept that, is is what form should that political authority take and how can that political authority be made as bearable as possible for as many people as possible? So I want to ask you where you think we should go from Hobbes, but I just want to say two things. One, which is a kind of story, which one year when doing this course that begins with Hobbes, this is how academic life works now. We were kind of audited by someone from the outside who had to come and see whether we were teaching in a responsible way. And that person said, though they found the course interesting, that my memory of it is that I was told, you're not allowed to start with Hobbes. It's too dangerous. It's actually sort of slightly corrupting. Um, so I said, oh, I didn't realise those were the rules. Who who do you start with? And I was told, well, you have to start with John Stuart Mill on Liberty. That's where you start. Because that sets up students at the beginning of the 21st century for the first question. And I think you and I probably do agree that we don't think that's the first question. The other thing to say is I think we can overstate the extent to which we we are in a world where people are disputing fundamental authority. I mean, something that remains to me striking is the extent to which in the United States, with Donald Trump as president, elected under a system, the Electoral College system, which there are many reasons to question its legitimacy. And then there are many reasons for people who do not like what Donald Trump represents to think that the danger that he poses means that one should question whether he should be allowed to count as the ultimate source of authority in his role as president. And yet, almost everybody accepts that he is president. Um, I mean, there may be a question to come after the next election, if there's a really close result, or if Trump starts to dispute whether or not he's lost, we might get into nightmarish Hobbesian style scenarios. But though there are these huge disagreements, epistemic disagreements in the United States about authority and so on, people seem to accept that Donald Trump can exercise the authority of president much as they hate it. Yeah, I think that that's to some extent true. I mean, I think that there there is something of a rejection of Trump's authority in the language of the resistance, as sometimes some people who have wanted to remove Trump from office by impeachment have used. I mean, one thing I would say is, is that 
I think that there has been, in this sense, it, it is Hobbesian and it kind of runs actually through the time that we've been teaching that course, a deterioration, if you like, in the acceptance of authority in the American Federal Republic. Because if you go back to 2000 and the 2000 election and the fact that that election ended up in the Supreme Court and effectively the Supreme Court acted as the Hobbesian sovereign in that moment by ordering the end, as I recall it, of the recount that was going on in three, I think it was, um, Florida counties. And as a consequence, George W. Bush was president. And although there was lots of anger and deep unhappiness about what had happened through that election, that election result was accepted. And so the fact that an election could turn on the decision of the highest judicial court on a five to four for the crucial decision verdict didn't actually really, in the end, delegitimate George Bush's presidency. I think there's there has been sort of stronger challenges to the authority of Trump's presidency than there was to what happened back in, in 2000. And I think that that probably does say something that is somewhat worrying about politics in the American Republic. And of course, the delegitimation process was in some ways starkest in the Obama presidency, and Obama won fair and square. I mean, no one could really say that he didn't win by the rules. And yet, not least Donald Trump himself, did everything in his power and the people who thought like Trump in their power to delegitimate the Obama presidency. Let's let's move on, because otherwise we will just talk about Hobbes. So in the the series of talks that I did on, on the other podcast, I went from Hobbes to Wollstonecraft, which is actually not how we've done it when we've taught this. I, I did it partly because I've always loved Mary Wollstonecraft's writing, and I thought it was an interesting place to go next, although that means I skipped a lot, not just John Locke. Where would you go from Hobbes if you were doing a 12-part history of ideas? Or maybe you'd go to Mary Wollstonecraft too, though I suspect not. No, I think that I would go where we go. To be honest, I, I, we've changed the order of things around so many times, and this bit's your lecture, is not mine, so I'm not entirely sure whether this isn't where you go anyway, to Constant. Because I think that, well, I think it's two things. It's a direct answer to Hobbes by actually saying that civil war isn't the worst thing that can happen, that it is the tyranny of the state, and that he makes a very specifically modern argument for that, because... You know, he says is that what he's seen in in the French Revolution is is that when you ally the power that the state can now the physical power, coercive power that the state can command and its ability to conscript men into large armies, and you have people leading that state who have got their head full of ideas from the Roman world in particular, that the destruction that can ensue is much worse. He says than anything can come out of a a civil war. Um, but I think also because Constant, I would go to Constant because I think that he does pick up this whole question that is so fundamental to the limitations of Hobbes's argument about beliefs. Constant wants to say that the the beliefs that people have in the modern world are a constraint, the actually existing beliefs are a constraint on political possibilities. And I think that that is quite a, a bracing argument to to take seriously and to think about. 
Hobbes wants to, as I say, sort of actually in the end, though he sort of denies it, change people's beliefs. He doesn't accept it, you know, as a constraint. He might leave them with their beliefs inwardly, but in terms of outward uh, manifestation of them, they need to be controlled for Hobbes. And Constant is saying, you know, we, we need to live in a political world where we accept that that is not possible and that we have to live with these beliefs, existing beliefs. And I think that problem, the problem of the pluralism of beliefs and what that means for politics is quite crucial and central to understanding the political predicaments which we're collectively now living through. Those beliefs include beliefs about religion. They include beliefs about other value systems. They include, and I talked about this when I talked about Constant, what you might call romantic beliefs. But they also include beliefs about money and economic life and crucially for Constant debt. I mean, Constant was very clear that one of the features of modern politics is going to be the relationship between states and citizens, and I think potentially at least external creditors too, about the nature of debt. And these are belief systems. You know, they're not just sort of scientific models. I mean, we know this about how economic life works, how money works, that a lot of it is based on trust and faith. And it seems to me that Constant, much more than Hobbes, I mean, Hobbes thinks that somehow the sovereign can nail down what money is, that Constant understands that money and the relationship between the state's power and authority over money and the belief systems of citizens is itself going to be a matter of faith. I mean, this sort of touches on things, I think, I mean, I may be wrong here, that you've kind of talked about in a contemporary context too. I mean, you've talked a lot, obviously, about debt, but Constance gets to that much more directly than someone like Hobbes ever does. No, he does very much. And one of the reasons why I think beliefs matter um, for Constant is, is that he sees that fluctuating beliefs about the value of debt have political consequences, including the state's ability to sell debt. And then that confidence in the state's ability to issue debt, which means ultimately confidence in the state's ability to service and perhaps repay that debt has to be maintained. So in that sense, the state does have to, it's a paradoxical, the state does have to get back into the problem of engaging with beliefs because it has to maintain belief in the value of the debt that it is issuing. And I do think, I mean, I don't begin to think that I've ever really got to grips with thinking about this problem systematically, but that thinking about debt is fairly fundamental to thinking about modern politics. Now, actually, I think it's in part, you have to think about it in terms of ancient politics as well. It's not simply a a problem of the modern political world, but I think it's a a more distinctive problem of the modern political world than it was in the ancient world. And it's one of the ways in which I think that sort of politics from some point really in the 15th century onwards is distinguished from what's come before it. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. One last mention of Hobbes, it does have a connection with the idea of the state as he conceived it as this kind of abstraction, because it turns out, I think, possibly to Hobbes's surprise, it might have been to Hobbes's surprise, that that abstraction can bear a much heavier load of debt and the faith, the confidence in it can be sustained than would be possible under any version of politics where, in the end, political power and political authority is identified with flesh and blood human beings. You need the Leviathan, you need the robot to carry the debt. 
which is one of the deep mysteries of the modern world. I want to ask you a question, though, about what comes between Hobbes and Constant, because so I thought you were going to say, well, so Hobbes and 17th century thinkers and earlier thinkers are kind of imagining modern politics. But the crucial events in the creation of the modern political world are the late 18th century revolutions, the American Revolution, the French Revolution. And those events produce their own ideas. And these are the ideas that Constant is reacting to just as much as he's reacting to Hobbes. Do you think that actually a history of ideas that grounds our understanding of the world that we live in needs the ideas that came out of those revolutions? Yeah, this is obviously a rather complicated question. I mean, I think that um, one thing, which I think for a while that you actually did give lectures on before we decided it was a little bit too complicated to integrate into things was the Abbe de Sierre's. Um And I do think that it is quite difficult to understand the modern political world without understanding the idea of nationhood. That isn't in any sense to say that nationhood is necessarily a a good idea or indeed a bad idea in itself. It's just to say that from the French Revolution onwards, that it became the, the dominant idea by which the authority and power of states was justified to those over whom it exercised power. I don't think you can really understand either the French Revolution itself, to some extent, the American Revolution, or indeed, and crucially, the reactions against empire, both the Ottomans in Europe, but also reaction against the European empires in all parts of the world, without understanding the history of the idea of of the nation. At the same time, I think that there is something that is pretty important about what happens in the United States uh, in the 1787 with the drafting of the Constitution and then its, then its ratification. And that is the idea that you can have a federal state that, that in this sense, that Hobbes was utterly wrong when he thought that the sovereignty of the state could not be divided. Indeed, he thought that if you had divided sovereignty, you simply didn't have a, a state at all. Well, he thought you'd get a civil war, and yeah. in America they yeah. did, we should point out. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, well, I think that the, the question about the relationship between the divisibility of sovereignty is the American, as Madison understands it, and what happens in, in the United States is, in terms of the civil war is a pretty interesting historical and political question. But I think that given that Hobbes would also have rejected entirely any separation of power within the federal government, so that between the executive, the legislature and the judiciary, understanding the American arguments that were made in favour of the separation of powers and in favour of federalism, I think that for the simple reason alone of America's importance in the 19th, 20th, 21st century, that those ideas have to be taken pretty seriously. Now, that doesn't mean that there's an awful lot of other things that don't need to be taken seriously about the American political story as well. And I I don't think that the creation of the American Republic can be at all reduced to those questions about the division of sovereignty, but I think that they have to be reckoned with. 
So just to spool back for people who are wondering, the the Siez text is a long pamphlet that this man, the Abbe Siez, wrote at the height of the early French Revolution called What is the Third Estate, in which essentially he tries to identify the nation with its people, the third estate, not the first estate, not the nobility, not the second estate, the church. But as he says in that piece of writing, the third estate is everything, and then tries to construct a very complicated and elaborate constitution for a new France based on that premise, that the people are the nation and the nation can ground a complex constitution. On the Federalist question, I'm going to ask you something now that you probably are going to wish that I didn't ask you, (laughs) but you were hinting at it there, so I think I'm allowed to. Um, And it's certainly a question that our students ask all the time. So you take Madison, the Federalist Papers, some of which were, not all, but some of which were written by Madison, including some of the most famous ones, Federalist 10, these beautiful, elegant philosophical but also polemical pieces of writing at some level of journalism to justify this new constitutional arrangement and highlight its benefits, including the ways in which it should be able to deal with all of those vices of politics that seem to bedevil pre-modern states, factionalism, discord, civil war. And yet, this was a slave-owning society and Madison himself was a slave-owner. And we are always being asked, and I think we grapple with this all the time, and it's incredibly difficult to know how to answer it. How do you reconcile the elegance and the resonance of the ideas with some of the abhorrence of the social and political order that they were justifying? That's my exam question for you. You're allowed to say you want to do a different question. I think that the American Constitution has to be taken you know as it was in the political moment that it was both agreed rationalized by people like madison and ratified after bitter political contest and that means that there's no getting away with, from the fact that the constitution was made for a federation of states some of which where slavery was entrenched and that there was an effective agreement at the moment of making that constitution that the question of both slavery and the slave trade were going to be repressed so that the disagreements that the states had about that weren't going to get in the way, as they saw it, of them producing this federal republic. And indeed, one of the provisions of the constitution that quite literally prohibits any political discussion of the abolition of the slave trade until 1809 I think it is and the fact that the question of which states were going to predominate politically within that federation was also in important respects stacked strongly in favour of the slave-owning states by the three-fifths clause that counted slaves as three-fifths of a person in terms of the number of representatives that states had in the House of Representatives, and that then had effects on the Electoral College. So it, it wasn't just that the Constitution 
upheld slavery and repressed deliberately the question of contesting the the slave trade, it actually constructed a republic which politically favoured the slave-owning states over the non-slave-owning states. And it was Madison who came up with that scheme. Yeah, I mean, Madison would originally would have preferred it not to have had the two states having equal representation in the in the Senate, because Virginia would have been the most powerful state that way if you'd done the Senate by population and then fell back on the other way of of doing it that advantaged the, the slave owning states in the in the House of Representatives. So I think that it can't be sugar coated at all. And I think that if you take some of the arguments that Madison made in, over these questions about representation and counting, the ideas have to be understood as rationalizations for what were political moves about power. I don't think, though, that means that everything that Madison had to say in the Federalist Papers was simply a rationalisation of either Virginia's interests or the interests of the class to which he belonged. And that I think that, in particular, his analysis of the separation of powers issues and federalism and its relationship to previous confederations, not the same as federation, not that they can be detached entirely from his position as a political actor trying to entrench certain privileges and class interests and state interests, but that they still have some historical and present tense political value in thinking about. What do you think is missing? So in the 19th century, we had Constant, then I did Tocqueville, Marx, and then I think I went straight to Gandhi. So I think I missed the whole of the second half of the 19th century, which now seems like quite a big gap. What do you think is missing from the 19th century in the way I did it? You can't, I now think it's ridiculous. You can't tell the story of 19th century ideas through Constant, Tocqueville and Marx. Well, I think that the the obvious answer here is Nietzsche and the genealogy of morality in particular. Having said that, I think as we've you and I have struggled with in the past, it, treating Nietzsche as a as a political thinker, an explicitly political thinker as opposed to a philosopher or a historian of civilization and morality and, and religion is actually quite difficult. But I, I do think that one of the things that Nietzsche brings to our understanding of, of politics now is, is that he does force a reckoning, I think I keep using this word now, with the religious question in ways that are somewhat uncomfortable. And I think that blow up that distinction, which you've run with of pre-modern and modern, because I think if you look at the world in Nietzsche's terms, then it's the coming of Christianity that separates out eras rather than something in the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries. And what is the thing that you think, so if you read Nietzsche now, and I agree with you, and I think I said in the Q&A episode that we just put out that that is also, along with Rousseau's second discourse, Nietzsche's genealogy of morality, I think, is the biggest gap that needs to be filled. 
it is a genealogy and it's not just a genealogy of morality as you say it's a genealogy of civilization in some ways it's a genealogy of ideas of equality and justice and democracy it's also a genealogy of christianity so christianity for nietzsche is something that comes in a sequence of human beings trying to grapple with their condition and christianity is associated for him with what he calls the slave revolt in morality so that the the weak need their vehicle their platform for their will to power because we all have a will to power and christianity is it so christianity is this is too crude but christianity is the manifestation of the will to power of the powerless so at its most literal level if you have a religion that says the meek shall inherit the earth that's really good for the meek what does that mean in the 21st century i mean it explodes everything and it's one of those books that when you read it nothing quite looks the same again and it literally explodes everything because the whole construct of modernity is then taken back to its pre-modern sources and you see the emergence of things that seem essential or permanent as being highly contingent including christianity itself as a kind of contingency but what what do you get from it for now I think just that, what you've just said, is, is the that... The contingency. The contingency and the fact that in exposing the contingency, in showing the dependence of various contemporary political languages on Christianity, that it forces us to engage with political questions that we don't really want to think about in part we don't want to think about them because there aren't there aren't answers to them and and we have to live in the world that in this sense that that christianity made without for many people wanting to claim that um, heritage is is there so you know facing up to nietzsche shows us that we are in some sense prisoners of the past so some people obviously will see that in a much more positive light than what I've just presented it and to some extent I might might myself so I think that given that we live in a time in which actually holding on to lots of what have turned out to be fairly complacent assumptions about politics that many of us had and I'm not excluding myself from that at all have come unraveled in the face of what has gone on for the last decade in, in particular, that perhaps understanding that in a very long historical sense in which, from where Nietzsche's coming from and the fact that there's, in, from Nietzsche's sense, I think a certain inevitability to where we are now in our confusion is worth it. I want to ask you one more question about that at the end, but a more specific one, because I know this is something that we do agree on in this trying to construct a, a narrative or an account of the history of ideas, which is in the 20th century, and we've talked about it on this podcast before, we did a whole episode about it to mark the 100th anniversary, Weber's lecture on the profession of vocation of politics that he originally gave in January 1919 is an absolutely key piece of writing. And I, I talked about it, and then I also talked a bit about it in the extra episode we just put out, because people wrote in with questions about who are the politicians it really applies to today. Is Weber warning us against Trump or Johnson or this kind of version of what's usually called populism? You know, he wasn't primarily thinking about that. Weber was thinking about the dangers of 
revolutionary politics in the aftermath of a, a world war, a total war. Again, I don't think I've ever really asked you this, but when you read Weber's text, and, and it's, it is a kind of sermon, as I described it, and it's got real warnings in it. I mean, it wants us to face up to the risks that we run personally and politically. And you look at our political world. Who is he, for you, who is he warning us against? Or is he warning us against all of it? I think well, the easy answer in a way is he's warning us against all of it, but I think in some sense he's warning us against ourselves. I mean, I always read that, the sermon part, if you like, as someone who is warning against the excesses of idealism, the excesses of of bringing in some sense so many beliefs and passions into the political sphere and saying that that it's dangerous and that if you think of it as the lecture ending as a kind of warning to the students and and who are or those of them who are involved in radical politics is ending up by asking well what's going to come up for you in 10 20 30 years time and the answer isn't particularly encouraging he doesn't think many of them are going to be up if you like psychologically to what they are putting themselves through in participating in in politics in the way in which they are doing. And I think that there is something in that for for all of us in terms of what the relationship of politics has been to many people's lives over the last five years in particular. Okay, so the last question, it, it goes back to what we were just talking about with Nietzsche. And Nietzsche profoundly influenced Weber. In a way, you can't really talk about Weber without doing Nietzsche first. So I think in the second series of this, we do need to do Nietzsche. But there's also that wider question, not just about Nietzsche's influence, but as you posed it, the question of contingency and the value, therefore, of the history of ideas, because Nietzsche's genealogy tells us kind of how we became the people that we are and that that is a contingent story. So it didn't have to go that way. It's not deterministic. There were to coin a phrase, paths that we didn't take. You know, the human story could have gone different ways, but he traces it back before telling it forward so that we can see the steps on the road to get us to where we are now. And psychologically, that could have, I mean, it can have many effects, but it could have two fundamental effects, one of which is it can be liberating to think that it's contingent, that it didn't have to be this way, that these things that we think are inherent to who we are and many of the beliefs that we think are essential quintessential beliefs that make us human are actually beliefs that we have acquired under conditions of particular kinds of power relations and the way that they play out and that we have choices we have real choices as a species as nations as individuals as polities the other way it can go is it can be um, and Nietzsche has had this effect on many people who read him it can be both depressing and constraining because we feel like we're trapped you know, this is the path we did take. I mean, we didn't take those other paths. And there is a kind of grim inevitability to Nietzsche's story at the same time as it's meant to be highly contingent. I mean, it was part of his genius that he makes it seem both inevitable and contingent. And so the history of ideas, it can have these effects. It can make you feel we have real choices. We don't have to think about the world in the way that we sort of have inherited. And it can also make you think that well, this is the world that we inherited. And I can never decide which, uh, just for myself, I'm, you know, I'm, 
often torn between these two things. I try and and Nietzsche kept saying to his readers, you know, don't take this as a nihilistic message. You know, this is about affirmation. This is about life. But it's really hard sometimes to hold on to that. I mean, the history of ideas, it can feel limiting because these are our ideas. Yeah, I mean, I think there's another aspect for me to this because as you you well know that I'm not a historian of ideas. (laughs) Well, you're everything. (laughs) You do it all. And so... One of the frustrations I, you know, can have with the with the history of political ideas, and in some sense, this you know goes back to the question about the American Constitution is is the ways that that they can be deployed in order to rationalise what really the pursuit of material interests, and I think that the question of like what ideas themselves explain about human motivation in politics and what extent that they are rationalizations of other motives is always quite a difficult question to to grapple with and so I think there is sometimes a danger and this may just be the fact that I'm not a historian of ideas talking in me is is that the history of ideas can make actually political action seem too straightforward that actually can too easily lead people to think that the political world can be you know, like readily remade into some ideal form that people have of how it should be. And I think that history seems to me to be sort of the counter to that idea. And I mean by that much broader history than just the intellectual history. So for me, it's not simply a question of like whether the ideas leave us with freedom or trapped as, as you put it, but how we think about then the relationship between ideas and material constraints and perhaps material opportunities for that matter um, as well. So in that sense, I've always sort of have an inclination to want to balance the history of ideas off non-idea history if that's, that's not quite the right term for it, because I, I mean more than just material history, but broader history. It has to be said for Nietzsche that he can give you that as well. I said it was two things, but it's many more. And you can read Nietzsche, and, and what you can get from Nietzsche is actually a debunking of the history of ideas and the thought that if you really want to make sense of the human condition, you have to think really hard about the rationalizations of power. And if you think about it hard enough, you'll see it almost everywhere. I mean, there's the risk of nihilism from Nietzsche. There's also the risk of very, very deep cynicism, which has to be resisted, but it can't be completely resisted because some cynicism about the relationship between ideas and power is what you learn if you study history. Yeah, I mean, I think that that you have to hold somehow, and this is a very Weberian thought, I know, you have to hold both the claims of both of them as the fact that you have to take seriously the reality that can be you know, seen by observation that sometimes ideas are used to rationalise power. But I, I don't actually think that that means that all ideas are reducible to either interests or, or to power at all. And part of understanding politics, I think, is, is trying to work out what is an instance of, of which. If you would like to hear my take on the history of ideas, and it is my take, and after having heard Helen, you might wish that you had her take instead... All of those podcasts are available at Talking Politics, History of Ideas. You can get them wherever you get Talking Politics. If you subscribe, you'll get them all and extra episodes as we do them. And we hope eventually a second series 
which will include some of these people that I left out last time. Next week, we're talking to Anne Applebaum about her remarkable new book, The Twilight of Democracy, which tells the story of what's happened to democratic politics over the last 20 years in America, in Britain, but also in places like Hungary and Poland. Do please join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>